Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is uh, Fatumata Mimi Keita. Mimi is the lead for IFC Sustainable Infrastructure Advisory in Guinea-Conakry. Mimi has over 15 years of project management experience, including 11 years in the mining sector. Mimi has implemented IFC activities across multiple countries, including in Guinea, Ghana, Senegal, South Africa, and the DRC. She focuses on local economic development, gender, and multiple stakeholder dialogue. I have the pleasure of working with Mimi on several initiatives in Guinea. Mimi, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sheila. That's wonderful. So I just wanted to uh, ask you, how does the engagement of communities near extractive uh, projects safeguard the social environment? Thank you. Thank you for the question, um, Sheila. It's, a, it's an important one. So in my view, um, community engagement is really key in building trust uh, before not, between natural resource companies and the local communities. Uh, doing so helps manage expectations, avoid risk, potential conflict, and project delays. Um, and it's also important to start early and be inclusive. So ensuring that gender and vulnerability are integrated is key. So let, let's talk about uh, the notion of vulnerability then. So how does one practically identify uh, those groups in the community that are vulnerable? Yes, um, it's not always very simple, but definitely uh, companies, and we all do, but especially from the from practical standpoint, companies do have the responsibility to identify vulnerable group from an impact anticipation and management perspective. So this should really start uh, with their um, environmental and social impact assessment process. Um, and so when we're speaking of vulnerable groups, we're referring to women, youth, the elderly, the disabled, uh, marginalized groups, etc. Now, uh, post ESIA, if you would, once the project is uh, under implementation, uh, we help clients identify vulnerable populations through stakeholder mapping and analysis. And then we support them in uh, developing and implementing uh, uh, subsequent engagement plans. So you you speak about engagement. Can you just give us some uh, practical examples of methods for engaging communities? Sure. So um, there are um, opportunities to be seized um, in engaging communities through um, uh, public forums. Um, so that's an opportunity to actually um, gather um, community representatives, ensuring obviously that you know different groups are represented, um, and um, providing uh, you know, information, sharing information, sharing project updates, uh, hearing community concerns, answering their questions, uh, just providing um, an avenue for for dialogue. That would be one of the practical ways that community engagement could happen. There's also um, uh, social investment, for instance. So community development projects, that's another way of engaging. There's also the issue, of course, of you know managing impact. 
Um, so that's also another key one to engage communities about. They want to know about, uh, you know, how the project is going to affect them. And during implementation, it's important to hear also from them how it is affecting them. What are the issues? What is the company doing or the large uh, natural resources projects doing to address uh, and also help mitigate such uh, such impacts? So you, you, we speak of communities, but I'm reminded that large uh, extractive uh, projects and infrastructure projects tend to attract mass migration by uh, people who see uh, this project as providing opportunities for employment, small business and others uh, for improving their livelihoods. So I wanted to understand from a practitioner's perspective, how do you differentiate between those communities that are responding to the opportunities created by the project versus those that are already on the ground and are inherently impacted by the development? Yes. So yes, there, there may be uh, various reasons why uh, practitioners may seek to differentiate between natives and uh, newcomers. Um, and it's actually been, in my experience, uh, a recurring source of conflict in mining communities. However, um, in the context of Guinea, uh, we should remember that from a legal perspective, um, all Guineans are considered locals. And whether we're speaking of you know, uh, employment opportunities or contract opportunities, you know, when we speak local content, we're talking about all unions. Now, obviously, there are distinctions uh, when we talk of locals. Uh, those are those impacted directly by uh, the, the uh, natural resource projects option. You have regional uh, uh, locals and you also have national level locals. So there are uh, differences, but one way to sort of um, uh, respect the law vis-a-vis -vis that is that in the mining codes in Guinea, um, the law does give preference to impacted communities, for instance, for unskilled jobs. So that's the one instance where you really have to source uh, labor, uh, you know, closer to the mine. Otherwise, uh, in the eyes of the law, all the different levels of, of locals are considered uh, you know, as part of local content development things. So, so really what you're saying is that it's, it's contextual, but it's also a function of a country and how the country as laws view these uh, groups that in Guinea, in the first instance, all Guineans, are, you know, the law addresses the opportunity for them to benefit from local content, but at the same time, when we look at the actual impact on the ground, uh, the law uh, gives regard to those people that are found. And, and so as a practitioner, you would then essentially be guided by those provisions. Is that what you're saying, Mimi? That's exactly what I'm saying. I think uh, there may be strategic reasons for, for projects to um, want to identify, you know, uh, who uh, the directly impacted populations are, but from a legal perspective, and that's really the first sort of um, uh, compass to look at, uh, all Guineans are considered as locals. 
Sure. So I want to take you back to something you said earlier. You you mentioned the that um, by engaging communities uh, in terms of uh, a, a, the social environment, one of the goals is to build trust. Can you speak to the notion of trust? Trust between whom and why is trust such an important consideration? So yes, trust is really, uh, in my opinion, the foundation of uh, any type of relationship, whether you're speaking of the mining sector or um, I think in the in the context of mining, for sure, there's a lot of, um, let's say, um, you know, impacts, whether um, uh, environmental or social that are inherently part of the development of the project. So I think, um, you know, it's important for the company to be transparent about what those are, uh, to communicate about it, and really ensure that, you know, people have the right information and that, you know, they are also part of uh, the project. Um, and so trust is the foundation when you're, uh, when the company is developing uh, the relationship with the, the, the community, this is really something they have to build when they are also supporting, you know, their, their livelihoods or uh, supporting, uh, you know, resilience. They have to ensure there's trust first. Otherwise, uh, you know, the rest of it is not going to come together. Mm. So um, is this perhaps uh, what we mean by securing the license to the social license to operate? And if, if not, how does trust uh, differ or for that matter impact that social license? So social license is really um, sort of social acceptability, if you would, um, if you could call it that way. It's really um, this idea of having buy-in from those that are impacted by the project and that eventually, hopefully, you're able to get them to feel as co-owners of the project. Um, and so the SLO is something that is dynamic. So you have to earn it, but you know you have to try and maintain it. Um, and so trust is key in that because um, you know your stakeholders um, give you trust back if you're showing them trust and respect. So I do think that those two are uh, intertwined. There is no SLO without trust for sure. And so trust is really, it's a long, it's a mind long endeavor to build and to maintain that trust. Hmm. So you, you spoke earlier also that uh, uh, sometimes conflict can arise between communities and project sponsors. What are some of the, in your experience, underlying causes of conflict? Oh wow! There, there, there are there are so many. In my experience, um, the 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 one of the key ones for sure is the perception from uh, stakeholders, the community that you know they're not benefiting enough 
from the presence of the project, whether it be through um, employment or, or contract opportunities. Uh, but then generally, you know, such natural resource projects develop, um, in the case of Guinea, um, in an environment, in a rural environment that is remote, that is lacking infrastructure, basic infrastructure, um, where there are not a lot of opportunities, um, economic opportunities. And so, um, you know, when the, the, the project comes, um, this is viewed as an opportunity for locals to actually gain benefits. Um, and they have high expectations. And when you know, uh, such expectations uh, do not materialize into contracts or jobs, um, then that is you know, a sure source of conflict. Um, in the case of uh, the Bouquet region, for instance, as you know, there are multiple mining companies. So again, you know, that expectation is heightened by that. And so collectively, um, really, you know, the, the projects have a, a, a responsibility to contribute um, jointly to, 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 the, to the betterment you know, of, uh, of, of, of such communities. And then obviously they're not going to do it together. There are other partners, there's the government, you know, there's other donor programs, uh, international NGOs. It's really um, a, a multi-stakeholder effort and it's not an easy one, but it has to, to, to be done. Mm. So you you use uh, two ways which I think are potentially problematic for those wanting to ensure that the social environment is conducive uh, to uh, extractives and uh, infrastructure development, especially with a view to reducing social risk uh, a la ESG. The first was perception. And the second is expectation. I, I want to talk about each one of those. In my mind, it's always very difficult to manage perception because though it impacts how people uh, behave and how people respond to uh, project sponsors, it doesn't always ring truth with reality. And I wanted to get a sense from you, Mimi. How does one reconcile perception, which is not necessarily informed by reality, but nevertheless informs behavior? So um, perception is is particular, um, especially um, in you know community um, engagement or development in in in, in the mining sector um, in this country in particular. I think perception is reality for stakeholders. So uh, some of the perception may be founded or not. But once they believe what they believe to be true, I think you have to, um, you know, recognize that, address it, and a way to ch change perception is difficult, but it can be done um, if you are able to share information that is factual. The fact finding can be participatory, so that you know it's not questioned anymore. Uh, but perception is really reality for stakeholders. So if you want to build trust, you have to take into account the perception and try to uh, sort of work with it and, and change perception and, and show that, you know, uh, perhaps what they're seeing, there may be other other explanations or, or other ways to look at it, but definitely take into account the perception. What of expectations? Uh, my experience is that... Uh, 
expectations can be first legitimate and sometimes mm -hmm. not legitimate, sometimes can be uh, realistic, sometimes can be disproportionate to what is possible. How do we strike the balance such that, to your point, because of these perceptions, because of these expectations, we have to respond. There's no point in arguing with whether they are realistic or not. But how does one practically strike the balance between realistic, illegitimate, or legitimate expectations? So I think first I would think through um, education, awareness raising would be the word. Awareness raising for communities, for instance, to understand what are the, the duties and also the rights of the mining company and vice versa. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the, the mining company is seen as the problem solver. However, their core business is really in the case of iron ore mining to mine those uh, uh, minerals. And so um, development is not their core business. However, again, um, you know, to uh, contribute sustainably to development, they have to, to, to be part of the solution. And so expectations are there, but, um, you know, they can ensure that in their communication, it's clear, you know, what they're there for, but also what, you know, they're able to contribute to the overall uh, well-being of, of, of the community uh, where they're operating. So it's fair to say that at least in uh, terms of, uh, you know, social norms, uh, socioeconomic activities, cultural activities, and even just uh, economic livelihoods, the, the arrival and subsequent development of huge pieces of land, uh, extraction of water, destruction of uh, forestry is quite disruptive to communities. What are some of the ways that uh, extractive companies can uh, assist communities cope with this disruption? Um, that's, that's an excellent question. So I think uh, the first thing is to ensure that um, communities are properly compensated. So it's a legal obligation, it's a moral obligation um, that they are properly compensated uh, for lost lands, but also for lost livelihoods. So those livelihoods have to be restored. So that's the first part. Then, um, you know, projects can also support uh, you know, sustainable livelihood development. And they can ensure that you know, for activities that were already uh, done by the communities that they do acquire um, you know, improved technical skills, that um, you know, they have access to information about maybe what some of the market opportunities are um, so that they can See whether this is really still the best livelihood for them in terms of you know uh, generating revenue. Um, they can also support them in learning how to manage better those livelihoods, um, especially if they want to go towards um, you know a commercial uh, type of uh, um, let's say uh, path. Um, and then obviously um, facilitating access to finance, maybe uh, some training around um, access to finance, linking them potentially with microfinance institutions, supporting them in developing business plans, et cetera, 
um, and also facilitating access to markets. So I do think that you know the presence of the um, natural resource company is is a, is a true opportunity uh, to support linkages and ensure that there is a connection between um, local businesses and and those large projects. So so really, mm, the, there is a level of while there's a level of truth that uh, the project can be disruptive. What you're saying is with proper engagement and with proper assessment and, and collaboration, these projects can be a force for good. Uh, and, and that there's probably an error in us unduly focusing on the problem as opposed to looking at some of the benefits and opportunities that these projects bring, including, as we said, access to markets for local goods, but also uh, facilitating development of a robust uh, ecosystem. I think that is something that is not uh, possibly emphasized a lot because when we talk about extractions, we think more of the conflict of interest mm -hmm. between the communities and uh, the large mining companies. So mm -hmm. if, I, if I think about, uh, you know, development institutions and other development partners, what, what role uh, can these partners uh, perform in order to help improve these mutual benefits and make sure that communities and uh, project sponsors can coexist? Yes, so I think that uh, the role of uh, partners would be really to support primarily, at least in, in my experience and in my case, to support um, large projects to really have uh, strategies and approaches that uh, support inclusive and meaningful engagement uh, with communities. As we said, it's important to build trust and to establish dialogue and maintain it. That would be one of the ways that, you know, the, the co coexistence can be mutually uh, beneficial. But as I also mentioned, you know, it's by sharing the benefits of the projects with uh, local uh, community. And again, that happens through supporting the development of um, you know, local content strategy, but also uh, community investment strategies that are sustainable um, and that are also leveraging, you know, multiple partners um, to be able to create greater impact for those communities. Hmm. So um, we spoke earlier about the business opportunities, employment, but of course, the one thing we know about mining oil and gas project is that the resource is finite, which is to say at some point uh, the project will uh, close. How do we ensure that the initiatives that we start during the production phase are sustainable beyond the life of a project? So I think this is done by integrating sustainability consideration from the onset. Um, as you said, resources are finite. Um, and so we need to ensure that this is communicated to our, our communities, our stakeholders. Um, and also, uh, again, and you know, I'm repeating myself, looking at you know, developing 
community programs that really focuses on a building um, skills um, and ensuring that, again, you know, those skills and those uh, goods and services that would be developed are in line with market needs and that there's really strong ownership of the communities and the beneficiaries in such initiatives because I think the, the ownership is key. If they own the project and they feel it's theirs, then, you know, I feel that would be the, the biggest achievement because whether the mine is there, the partners are there or not, you know, they are owning this and they are, uh, you know, generating uh, benefits and revenues for themselves and their families over time. So some people have argued that uh, actually communities must receive, say, royalty payments. In your view, is this the right thing to do? Is it sustainable or is it merely divisive, especially in countries where, uh, you know, nationhood is new and, and uh, levels of fragility are quite high? So this question, the, the angle through which I'd like to, to respond is really um, based on, you know, what I have seen. I don't necessarily have an opinion on whether paying royalties is the right thing to do or not. But definitely, uh, from a legal perspective, there are um, revenues that are going to local communities through the payment of taxes by the company to national government, but also to local governments. In Guinea, uh, we have the FSA, which is the National uh, Development Fund. We have the Bordel, which is also the local development fund specifically for mining communities. And those are um, funds that are uh, both, uh, let's say, replenished by you know mining companies. In the case of Bordel, it's 0.5% of the annual turnover. And then the National Development Fund um, is actually funded by the government uh, who, who uses 15% of their uh, uh, annual revenue from mining to develop you know, uh, the country as a whole through you know, building infrastructure, um, et cetera. And so for me, at least in the case of Guinea, there are mechanisms um, that are um, in place to support local development, uh, you know, from sort of a mining uh, path. And so the question now is, you know, are these sustainable? Are they running well? Are they uh, run transparency, accountability, and do they have impact? Um, that would be how I would, I would, I would look at this. Mm -hmm. Let me push the question another way. Why is it not sufficient for uh, companies to simply compensate communities for property, land rights, forestry rights, and water rights. Why must we go beyond that? Um, I think that, as we mentioned earlier, so compensation happens, um, and it's it's an obligation. But beyond that, um, I think there is an element of um, building, um, let's say, human capital around these processes and, um, you know, governance and also capacity to ensure that, you know, if this these funds are provided, that they will be managed according to, um, you know, what's planned. So if, 
um, you know, perhaps, and again, I'm speaking in my own view, if, if, if royalties are paid directly, um, are we sure that um, the royalties will support the post mine, you know, the development during and post mine? I think that's a question to ask and see, really have the right mechanism in place to look at how this fund would function and also, of course, take into account the local context. Here's my last question to you. Um, how, in your view, uh, and if at all, has ESG changed the way investors perceive and manage uh, social environmental risk? Um, yes. So investors or lenders, um, you know, they do require companies that they invest in to abide by strict environmental and social and government standards. This is important for them to manage, you know, their reputational risk, both for the investor and the company anyways. And so this, what this means, you know, for, um, you know, host communities, for instance, is that you know, there is uh, oversight on how you know the rights are being exercised and protected and that investors are looking to invest in companies that do have such standards that's fantastic well mimi it was lovely speaking with you thank you very much for sharing your insights i appreciate your coming on to the sheila come extracted podcast thank you so much sheila i truly enjoyed the conversation